1: Hello and welcome to New Books and Christian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today we're joined by Dr. Lexi Eichelboom, author of the new book, Rhythm, a Theological Category, published in 2018 by Oxford University Press. Lexi, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: I'm so excited to get into this book with you. But before we dive in, um, why don't you tell us about a little bit about yourself and and how you uh, came to work on this project?
0: Sure. So um, I, uh, in some ways, I think grew up doing theology. I didn't know it was a profession, but I grew up in a Christian evangelical community, asked a lot of questions, had the feeling there was always more going on, but didn't sort of know how to get at it. Um and so because I didn't know that it was possible to do the inquiry professionally, I, I signed up to study psychology when I was in college uh, and stumbled upon theology through a philosophy survey course, actually. And I had this experience um, that I I remember vividly and felt almost viscerally at the time where we were learning about Plato's theory of forms and i felt my brain almost uh stretch into a shape it had never inhabited before in order to reach the top shelf and uh I was uh, so intrigued by this experience where thinking was not just about learning new information, but actually about changing the frame uh, for seeing the world. And I was interested in how it was possible that this was a thought, um, that there's this idea of a form somewhere out there, uh, the tree-ness of a tree, a thought that was so difficult for me to grasp, but that seemed natural and intuitive to somebody somewhere at some time. Uh, And so I uh, continued on studying theology philosophically through graduate school. And this idea of different sorts of uh, epistemologies and different ways of framing reality, different planes of thinking, and the interface between those is something that has stayed with uh, my methods and my work. Um, as I've progressed through my study and all of this is sort of in the service of trying to understand what it means to be human. Um, so this is sort of what all of my research has been about. And, uh, yeah. I, I get at that question then through these different dis- interdisciplinary modes of inquiry, um, And so, for example, now that I'm I'm here as a a researcher at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne um, and alongside my own research, I'm co-leading a project um, that's investigating the parallels between ways of knowing that are made possible by religious ritual and by art practices. And um, it's a project that includes some experimental psychologists on it. So in some ways I'm circling back to the thing that I started yeah. studying in the beginning, um, also some humanity scholars, and then also practicing artists, not just as subjects, but as inquirers alongside us. So I'm really interested in how it is that um, people who are embedded in different sorts of practices and mediums um, end up thinking in different sorts of ways that can't be necessarily translated. Um, into one another, but that if they are brought together in new and creative ways, can generate uh, interesting new perspectives on what it means to be human.
1: That's absolutely fascinating. I would love to talk with you about all of that um, for hours, but let's go ahead and dive into to the book that, that you've written, Rhythm, a Theological Category. Um, I'm curious what led you to to write this book. I mean, Specifically, I mean we've we've heard about your project overall, but one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that your one of your goals seems to be uh, to be as broad as possible. So uh, as an, as a way of offering something of an ecumenical dialogue, um, it, you, you've approached this subject from a variety of Christian traditions. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, about what led you to this project, about your method and an approach for this particular study.
0: Yeah. So most basically, um, the thing that led me to write the book is a sort of confluence of three factors. So first of all, it's an important dimension of what it means to be human. Yeah. Um, and this is just at the level of, right, we're embedded in um, the rhythm of the seasons, we have heartbeats, we breathe, we have a digestive you know, all of these processes are rhythmic processes. And then there are also social rhythms that we're embedded in, um, patterns and uh, rituals and repetitions. That gives some sort of structure to our lives. And so it seems uh, awfully important for understanding what it means uh, for us to be humans here in the world. In addition, there are a handful of philosophers and theologians who have intuitively sort of reached for the category as a way to explain something about reality. They'll be sort of talking about what is the nature of reality, and they reach for this idea to try to express something. So those are two factors. The third factor is that even though those two things are the case, the category hasn't really been theorized much, uh, Mm -hmm. and certainly not in theology. So it's really important, and philosophers and theologians use it, but we sort of are not clear yet on what it is that we mean when we use the term. So it seemed to me like if I could um, start to address some of that and do some of that theorizing, it would help us to understand the first factor and the second a little bit better to understand what theologians and philosophers are doing when they use the term, and also to hopefully understand a little bit better who we are as humans. So. Um, as you say, I wanted to be as broad as possible, at least within the discipline of Christian theology, right? So I have a particular audience, um, and I'm, I'm located in a particular way I am, um, trying to make the term particularly useful and accessible to Christian theologians, but mm-hmm. I wasn't interested in sort of creating um, a, a particular doctrine for a certain confessional Christian community or something like mm-hmm. that. And so the method that I uh, followed was really to, to try to just let the the sources lead me, right? So I started... Um, by first just paying attention to who was using the term, uh, and, and how I just followed the trail that was there. So I identified a variety of philosophers and theologians who appealed to the category at some point in their work. And not all of them made it into the book in the end. Um, because, uh, you know, sometimes it, it pops up just a couple of times in some people. But I, I sort of collected them into some representative samples where there were a few people who spoke about it enough that I could kind of create a conversation between these thinkers. And um, the fun thing about that is that you you get sort of um, unusual um, conversation then between thinkers who aren't often put together. So on the one hand, I have Erich Schwara in the book, who is this... Um, little-known 20th century um, German Jesuit theologian. And then Giorgio Agamben, who is a a contemporary, slightly anarchist um, philosopher. Uh, so that's sort of interesting. So uh, I had all these sources, and then what I needed was a framework for interpreting the various references, um, trying to find some way to figure out how I was going to make sense of the different ways that the category was being used. And so since I wanted to figure out what it is that rhythm is telling us about what it means to be human in the world, it seemed to me that it was important that um The appearances of the category were analyzed through concepts and frameworks that were as close as possible to human experience. Um, That the framework that I was using resonated um, and was connected to how we actually feel and experience rhythm in the world. And so, uh, at the broad level, this involved uh, at least pointing to uh, a variety of areas where rhythm is important. Everything from jazz improvisation to um, how does rhythm work in the context of interpersonal communication um, to sort of political situations in particular, the ways in which the temporalities of um, uh, American slaves were homogenized, but then also how African-American slaves used rhythm as a a form of resistance in certain cases. Mm -hmm. So I create this pretty broad constellation of ways in which the category shows up But then within that, I sort of determined that in order to uh, create a framework for analysis, um, the thing that's going to be most useful to me is to um, zero in on the arts and specifically on poetry. And I think the reason for that is is, um, sort of pragmatic. Uh, First of all, that sometimes when you have a delimited artifact, it can be much easier to see what's going on. Right. So within the context of a particular poem or or poems, one can, um, get a clearer sense of, uh, what the rhythms are doing, uh, because they're foregrounded in a way that, um, they're, they're not in everyday life where there's so much else going on. Um, and then also it's useful because, um, there just is a large literature analyzing the, um, the rhythms of poetry. Um, it's called prosody and, uh, that was helpful because what it meant was that I was able to think about uh prosodists analyzing the rhythms of poetry as analogous in some way to how philosophers and theologians analyze the rhythms of reality more generally. And so it was a a framework for analysis that I could kind of watch how that conversation was working and then draw parallels to how the conversation might be working in theology and philosophy. So that was a way to illuminate um, those other uses. Um, and, and what happened in the end was I found that uh, the, the prosodists could be divided into sort of two groups. There are many different ways to analyze the rhythm of a poem. But broadly speaking, there's a, a, what I call a synchronic approach and a diachronic approach, um, which we can you know, get into if you want to. But the, that uh, polarity ends up being sort of the backbone of the, the methodology of the book.
1: Wonderful. That's so interesting. Thanks, Lexi. I'm. I want to. I want to get into now these these two approaches. So you you talk about the synchronic and the diachronic approach to rhythm. Um. So so tell us. Uh, let, let's start with synchronic. W- what is uh, a synchronic approach to rhythm? How does that inform theology? And maybe along the way, could you introduce us to the the cast of characters who might fall into this um, side of the of the polarity?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm so glad that you said synchronic approach, because there's first this thing I want to clarify, right, is that sometimes people can have the idea that um, there are synchronic rhythms and there are diachronic rhythms. And so that's not, that's not what's going on. I'm not trying to um, cl- classify rhythms or put them into sort of two different buckets. What I'm interested in is um, what are the different possible perspectives or ways of thinking about a rhythm. So this goes back to what I said about my interests at the beginning, right? What are the different epistemological perspectives that a person can take? And what sorts of realities does inhabiting a different perspective open up? So that's sort of where I'm going with this um, polarity between the synchronic and the diachronic. The synchronic uh, approach to rhythm is sort of what it sounds like if you think about synchronicity, right? It's about holding things together. It's about seeing something all at once. And so Synchronic approach to rhythm is one that attempts to map out the rhythm of a poem, for example, in order to see how the whole thing hangs together so you can see it all at once. And as such, you can kind of see the harmony um, of the of the artifact of the poem, for example, Um, you can see how it works together as a whole to be the unique thing that it is so. uh, to give you an example of what this might look like, uh, the way it sometimes it appears in, in the literature is almost like uh, you were looking at a musical score, but it's it's an analysis of a poem. And there are these different layers, essentially, that uh, are superimposed on one another. And so uh, at the bottom, you might have an oscillation between strong and weak beats, And then the very top layer of the poem uh, is a kind of forward motion that's created by the semantic content of the poem, by which I mean, every time we speak, when we say a sentence, uh, the the sentence is always going somewhere. So we're in this sort of state of expectation, right? To find out where the sentence is going to go, what is it going to say? And that creates its own temporality, a kind of forward push. So uh, that's the kind of very top layer of the poem. And then you have these oscillating beats. And then in between, there are all of these intermediate groupings of um, different collections of beats, um, of long and short, of expectation and regression, things like this. And it creates these sort of shapes. So hopefully you're getting a picture in your mind uh, a little bit as I'm speaking of these sort of layers on top of each other. And the idea is then that the rhythm is somehow um, defined by or constituted by these different layers interacting with each other in this particular kind of way. So In theology, then, following this idea that uh, we can think about philosophers and theologians as being kind of like prosodists for Mm -hmm. the rhythms of reality more generally, um, where we see rhythm approached synchronically, theologians are typically endeavoring to give some kind of an account of how reality as a whole is kind of hanging together harmoniously, So it's an an endeavor to do the same kind of thing that a synchronic prosodist might be doing, looking at a poem, trying to say something about the basic structure of the relationship between God and creation, and thinking about it in terms of these uh, layers that have a kind of um, resonance with one another, and that that is what holds all of reality together. So the interesting thing about this, uh, to me, is that the approach actually encompasses two, um, different kind of metaphysical positions in theology that are often thought to be at odds with each other. And they are in many ways, but they both take a synchronic, um, perspective on rhythm or they, they think about rhythm synchronically performs a synchronic function for them. Mm -hmm. So the first is a more traditional kind of metaphysic. And so, um, talking about the cast of characters, uh, Augustine is a good example of this. Um, He, in his book De Musica, he describes this traditional metaphysical vision uh, in in ways that explicitly draw on rhythm as a way to express it. And so in his vision, the cosmos is uh, essentially a matrix of rhythmic layers that allows us to um, order reality proportionately. And so uh, at the bottom, you have material reality uh, and it has its rhythms. And then in the middle, there's the soul and then spiritual realities. And then eventually one gets to the divine uh, numbers or rhythms. The two ideas are very closely associated for Augustine. Um, and those divine uh, numbers or, or rhythms um, uh, translate down through the different layers so that each layer Uh, comports itself to the one above. And Mm -hmm. uh, in doing so, there's then a resonance through the entirety of the system, the whole thing holds together harmoniously. And it's possible then to um, have influence and communication sort of up and down the ladder. And so you you can imagine, hopefully, again, in your mind, you're getting a picture of how this looks pretty similar to um, the different layers of rhythm when one is thinking about a poem synchronically, that where the rhythm is located is in the the intersection of these um, layers or the interaction of the layers with one another. Um, the traditional metaphysics is one, but the other one is process theology, surprisingly, which is often mm-hmm. the opposite, right, of traditional um, metaphysics. And so th- th- a good example here is Catherine Keller's book, The Face of the Deep, where she also tries to give a kind of um, a metaphysic albeit not in the traditional sense, using the idea of rhythm. But she associates it not with order, but with chaos. And there's this kind of primordial chaos that uh, invites um, and generates uh, oscillations that are these loops that are amplified then into layers sort of from the bottom up. And God is the first oscillation between um, invitation and rest, and it generates from the bottom up. And so... Um, there's uh, uh, an, an opposite situation going on, right, where it's not order from the top down. Uh, it's emergent instead. But Rhythm is performing the same function here. It's still holding all of reality together, and the theologian is sort of standing back and observing how the whole fits together, and his or her own temporal experience doesn't really enter into it. Um, uh, He or she is just sort of acting as an observer. So I'm not making a claim here about which picture of reality is better or worse or that they're right. the same. I'm just pointing out that the, the approach to rhythm um, is similar uh, between the two of them.
1: Excellent. Lexi, one of the things that I appreciated, I, I think it's kind of in relation to this synchronic approach. You you, you talk a little bit about the, the etymology or some of the origin of even the, the concept of rhythm um, as a way to help understand that rhythm um, has had a, some from its earliest usage, it's it's kind of been used in some ways that might seem counterintuitive uh, to the person who's approaching the idea of rhythm for the first time. Can you talk a little bit about that and about how there's this this pre-Socratic and then Platonic like idea of rhythm and how that might even just with the i with the with the word help to expand um, it's some of its different usages um, as it's occurring throughout your study.
0: Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so yeah, etymologically, the term is. Um, complex. And um, so I'm throwing in now a sort of a different axis, right? Or this is a slightly different conversation. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, the thing I'm interested in is how, how is rhythm approached? How is it thought about? But then there are these other philosophers who um, are interested in what has the term meant historically. And uh, so the typical way that we often think about it is as Um, an oscillation between strong and weak beats, right? Something sort of akin to meter. It's associated Mm -hmm. with order. Um, But uh, some uh, uh, etymologists in the 1960s, Émile Bonveniste uh, and then um, Henri Mesconi later on, point out that actually much earlier, the idea of rhythm uh, for the pre-Socratics especially meant something more like a changing shape, and so they're advocating that we ought to go back to this uh, original meaning for a, a variety of reasons. And so there are all sorts of um, conversations about what happens when you change the meaning of rhythm. If you think about it as an ordered oscillation, or if you think about it as this kind of fluid changing shape, in what respect is that still a rhythm? Um, Does that change the way that we think about reality if this thing that is so pervasive actually isn't, um, an oscillation, but it, but is a kind of more fluid, um, -hmm. phenomenon. So, um, that's, yeah, that, that is operative in the background here. And especially for somebody like, uh, Deleuze on whom Keller is drawing, they're thinking of rhythm as this more fluid kind of shape.
1: Wonderful. And, and so then, and then going back to kind of our, our, primary conversation about the the two approaches to rhythm of the synchronic and the diachronic. um, What, what might be, you you note some of the uh, dangers is too strong of a word, but some of the, the pitfalls or, or the hindrances of an over-reliance on a synchronic approach to rhythm as especially from a theological perspective, what are, what is, what do we lose if we're, if we're too fixated on this, this unified whole attitude or or approach to this rhythmic idea
0: so maybe i can say in relation to um to what it is maybe that that we gain is that um i think some of the reasons that that it it appears so often in christian theology especially metaphysical ways of um speaking about theology is that what it does give us is a sort of coherent story to live by i suppose right Mm -hmm. um it, it, it's a way, is a tool perhaps uh, that we can use to navigate time, something that we can inhabit. But um, it, an over-reliance on it does start to feel anemic to me in the sense that it bypasses the human experience of what it means and how it feels to navigate and negotiate rhythms in time because the way that we experience them really is that um, – they often don't feel that harmonious. There are a whole bunch of rhythms that we're in, and they're kind of clashing all the time. And uh, it's not always this nice, harmonious kind of um, system. And so, uh, while that might, you know, give us some comfort and give us some ways to perhaps um, navigate reality, to um, have hope, perhaps it, it on its own. Um, doesn't help us to make sense always of the, the place that we find ourselves.
1: Excellent. Well, speaking of the experience in time, let's now move to the, the second approach to rhythm, this diachronic uh, approach. You know, same, same questions here. What, what is a diachronic approach to rhythm and, and how does that um, become generative for theological discussion? And, and who are some of the, the advocates of, of this sort of, of attitude?
0: Yeah, so exactly as you just uh, indicated, it, this is the one that's about um, being in time. So what is the um, the diachronic approach to rhythm? Um, it's more an assessment of the temporal experience of being in the rhythm than it is an assessment of uh, the features of a particular sort of artifact, if that makes sense. Yeah. So in the synchronic perspective, you're, you're looking at the poem as its own entity from a distance and looking at the pieces of it. But for those prosodists who approach poetry diachronically, they are paying attention to the co-creation of the rhythm between the reader and the piece that happens in time. So it's not something that belongs to the poem, but it's something that happens. It's an event um, that emerges between the two. And so there are a few different ways um, that a prosodist might do this. It could be that the prosodist pays attention to how it is that the features of the poem, the oscillations of the poem, set up certain types of motion in the body um, through speech or breath, Uh, for example, and uh, that creates certain sorts of emotional experiences. So that's one way of thinking about the interface between the reader and the poem in time. Uh, It's also the case that some think about the cognitive dimensions of what it means to read a poem and the experience of the rhythm at a cognitive level. So how it is that the mind interacts with language differently when one is reading a poem, because it has to keep in mind a few different patterns that it doesn't have to keep in mind in the course of regular speech. And so that's also about um, how it is that the brain is navigating time differently uh, in the case of a poem, uh, than it is typically, and so again, the the, the emphasis there is on uh, the interaction and on the time, rather than um, rather than on just the features of the poem itself. And the thing that I think is particularly interesting about the diachronic approach is that. Um, since it's describing the features of a certain kind of temporal experience, harmony actually starts to become less significant as a feature of rhythm. It doesn't disappear entirely. It's still important, but there there emerges space for uh, interruption to actually be something that's not antithetical to rhythm, but that's part of it. So for example, there's a certain device um, in poetry called the caesura, which is a, um, stop in the middle of the line of the poem. So it's often unexpected. You're kind of reading along right in a particular rhythm that's perhaps been set up at the beginning of the poem and you have sort of expectations that it will continue. And then you suddenly encounter this stop in the middle of a line that brings you up short. And, uh, that experience is interruptive, but it's an interruption that's not an interruption to the rhythm. It's actually, a a deepening of the rhythm. It's part of it. Right. It's part of what makes that poem's rhythm itself. Um, and so if one were to analyze the caesura synchronically, there would be the, the the emphasis on the harmony side. How is the harmonization achieved in and through the caesura? But if you're thinking about it diachronically, part of what you're interested in is the experience of reading and coming up short as you're moving through time where you in that moment don't know how the rhythm is going to be resolved. You have to participate in the resolution of it yourself. And so, um, the interruption is a real interruption, even though it's not antithetical to the, to the poem. So, um, thinking then of, of how it is that this, um, translates, right, the analogy then back into philosophy and theology. Where I saw examples of something similar going on here were in a few contemporary philosophers, most notably Giorgio Agamben, whom I mentioned earlier. Um, And he's very interesting because rather than Uh, attempt to describe the rhythm of reality in general as the others do that we've discussed so far. He's focused on what it feels like to encounter disruptions in experience and why those disruptions might be meaningful and not just destructive. And he explicitly links rhythm with um, this idea of disruption. He says that rhythm is the thing that takes us outside of the flow of time um, in the way that the poem sort of takes us out of the everyday. And so that it, that experience of um, uh, surprise, of coming up short, uh, the sort of caesuric experience is for him at the heart of what is significant and important about uh, rhythm.
1: Great. And then Are there any, um, theologians that you found were, were embracing more of this, this diachronic approach, um, and how it was, was giving tools for, for Christian theology?
0: Yeah, so, um... Eventually, the person that I come to who ends up being sort of the star of the book is this uh, Jesuit theologian, Erich Schwara, who I think does a really excellent job, actually, of holding both the synchronic and the diachronic perspectives on rhythm uh, in tension. Although, of course, he wouldn't have put things in that way. Um, But he has this complicated way of thinking about reality as two intersecting oscillations. And one of these is an oscillation between God and the creature. So that's sort of like the synchronic perspective, right? Where you're you're thinking about um, reality in general, right? What is the relationship between God and creation? And then the other oscillation is um, that within the creaturely itself is what he says. So this is uh, a nod, I think, towards the diachronic experience of uh, rhythm where within our creaturely experience, uh, we are moving all the time. He says that we're oscillating. And he thinks that you cannot think the one without the other. So you cannot think about the relationship between God and the creature without also thinking about or thinking from within the oscillations of the creature itself. And so the effect of this is that he doesn't end up with a, with a picture in which there are these two things, uh, the eternal and the temporal, the divine and the creaturely, that are then brought into relationship. It's not two predefined things. Um, instead, you end up with a movement between two movements. Uh, yeah. So everything is sort of always in motion. And mm-hmm. um, it's only through the movements that the creature encounters God Rather than us trying to directly apprehend this relationship between God and the creature,
1: you, you know, Lexi, one of the things that I appreciate is, So you've set up these two poles of, of a synchronic approach and diachronic approach, and, and there's always a temptation when you uh, set up two extremes to to try to provide the, the Goldilocks principle, the the happy middle, the 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 nice middle, you know, path forward to to kind of bring those two in harmony. But but you make the point that to do that would would be to actually to fall back into just another kind of synchronic approach so i i love to move with with that thought that you offer into and you started to touch on this with this idea of oscillation but but how does how did do, how does a rhythmic oscillation between a synchronic and a diachronic approach you talk about the way that it can start to become really fruitful as a as a way forward in in christian theology and in ecumenical dialogue so i'm wondering if if you could just share a little bit about some of the, the take-home benefits of some of these thoughts.
0: Yeah. Um, so I think, first of all, uh, the, uh, thinking about what I sort of set out to do at the beginning of this was one of the things was, um, you know, trying to understand something about what it means to be human. And yeah. this was part of why the diachronic approach um, was particularly important to me that it be given some attention um, because i think the assumed human capacity to give an account of of reality as a whole gives the human a kind of transcendent perspective um, that isn't really appropriate to what it means to be a human um, and so it can it encourage a kind of hubris right where we forget who we are and we take our eye off of um, uh, what it means for us to know as the sorts of creatures that we are. And so I think, uh, one of the things that I wanted to communicate was a kind of humility, uh, in remembering that the kinds of creatures that we are, uh, are ones that are always in motion, that we don't have a stable static point from which we can stand back and see everything. And uh, really th- what, we, what we do, and therefore what our uh, systems of thought ought to reflect is we move between different perspectives. And so if rhythm is all about us moving through time, then it seems like we need an epistemological framework that matches um, matches that situation. And I think um, in addition to reminding us of who we are in that way uh, and hopefully encouraging humility in the process, there is also a way in which it reminds us of uh, the, the nature of doctrine so that Christian doctrine, likewise, we shouldn't be thinking about that as a kind of Archimedean point from which we can see the whole. It's not uh, a blueprint, a synchronic blueprint that's given to us, uh, to which time then just comports itself. But uh, the situation is more complicated than that. And we have um, perhaps something like Uh, doctrines. We have truth claims. And then uh, those are always in time. They're encountered in time. We're working them out in time, speaking them in time. And as soon as we do that, uh, change becomes part of the question. And those uh, um, claims and practices of the Christian community start to encounter other claims and practices from other communities. And uh, if we take rhythm seriously, which uh, I think we should, um, because you know, if, if, if you're thinking along with me and you're you're a Christian reading this book, which this book is for Christian theologians, then um, you know, at the heart of that is the incarnation, where God yeah. uh, enters into time, and so that suggests to me that time and change are actually things that ought to be taken really seriously. And so subjecting doctrine in some ways to time and change is also to remember that doctrine is subject to the incarnation and isn't Mm -hmm. itself, um, isn't God itself.
1: That's so fascinating. Well, Lexi, I'm so glad that you've come to talk about your book, Rhythm. You've been so generous with your time. Um, I, I'm right there with you. I thought one of the biggest benefits that for me in reading the book was it just gave such a, um, a robust and, and interesting approach to, to, to paradox in Christian theology, and, and it just starts to give a really uh, fruitful analogy and, 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 pr- and approach for talking about theology and doctrine. So, so thank you so much. But before we, we say goodbye, I'm, I'm curious if you'd like to share with us a little bit about what you're working on now.
0: I'd love to, thank you. Uh, so I'm now working on a book on form. Uh, mm. I in some ways I'm continuing to investigate. Uh, some of the same sorts of questions that interested me in this book on rhythm, but I'm, I'm interested in this new category of form. And in part it came from investigating rhythm because one of the things that became clear to me was that um, something that's going on in all these philosophers and theologians is that they're thinking the category of rhythm actually through other forms. So you can think of it right as a hierarchy, as a flow, as an interruption, as a whole that's in flux. Those are all other sorts of forms. And so, um, it, it seemed interesting to me to take sort of another step back and think about how there's maybe an even more, um, general category that might be able to give us yet another perspective on this question of what it means to be humans who are trying to negotiate and navigate time through all of these different shapes. And the idea of form is so rich because it has such a long history in Christian metaphysical thought on the one hand as this kind of unchangeable essence of things. But on the other hand, it has this you know, slightly more kind of maverick meaning um, associated with shape uh, in the arts. And, uh, you know, that's often not very stable and changeless and essence-like at all. So uh, I'm, I'm investigating at the moment what happens when we bring those two different discourses together around this category. Hmm. Uh, what sorts of things does that illuminate?
1: Well, that sounds wonderful. Hopefully when it comes to press, we can have you back on the show and talk more about it.
0: Sounds wonderful.
1: Well, we've been talking to Lexi Eichelboom, author of the new book, Rhythm, a Theological Category, available now from Oxford University Press. Thanks so much for joining us, Lexi.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: And thanks for listening to New Books and Christian Studies. If you enjoyed this podcast, I think the best thing that we could ask you to do is share it with a friend. If you know someone who would be interested in the conversation that we've had here today, spread the word. Of course, go on to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen to to great interviews. Like and subscribe. Um, It means a lot to us. That's it for now. I hope you have a great day.